you know, whenever we do any kind of class related to parenting and children, I sh- you have to open up with this caveat, and that is that we're all just like completely terrified, right? We're all, you know, you're, you love your kids so much, you're so afraid that they're going to, you know, wreck their life or destroy themselves, and you only have so much control over your child. And, um, and so we just really have to go back to realizing that God is a, God is a, a better parent than we are. God knows our kids better than we do. God loves our kids a whole lot more, a whole lot more than we do. Um, he doesn't have any baggage. He doesn't have any baggage tied up that gets in the way of his ability to parent perfectly. He parents perfectly. So, you know, good news is that the Lord, the Lord is ult- the ultimate parent of your child. Our children are kind of loaned to us by God. And so, um, and so yeah, so that's good news. That's good news that he's, he's in control and that he's, he's, in, you know, he's looking after and pursuing your child. So let's um, take the load off of us. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Um, thanks for, thank you for being an, an ultimate healer. Thank you for being a provider. And uh, thank you for your presence. And we pray that uh, you would use this time for your glory. Pray that this would be helpful and it would be hopeful, Lord. And we uh, trust you with it. Matthew's prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the, the topic today is, is depression and suicide. Um, we're gonna, Gil and I are going to split it. Uh, I am just going to speak from a, like a personal anecdotal level. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. So I don't have any kind of clinical authority. But I am a person who um, is, you know, has struggled with depression. I've been medicated. I've, I've gone to you know, lots and lots of counseling over the last 12 years. And so I'm going to speak from that level. And so what I'm going to, what I'm kind of going to talk about a little bit, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story with depression, and then I'm going to speak about um, some of the patterns that were deconstructed through years and years of counseling that I see kind of in the lives of our kids, kind of patterns and challenges that don't necessarily, that, that can challenge mental health, like good mental health. And so I'm going to speak from that level. Gil is a licensed counselor, and so he's going to speak from a more from a cl- more clinical level. Um, and I'm going to, and, and so so that's kind of what we're going to do here. We're going to talk for probably 35 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for question and answer. Um, so just to tell a little bit myself, I um, I was you know on I, you know externally looked like a very happy kid, it's a smiler all the time. Growing up, I was a hard charger. Um, come, come right in. Um, I was a hard charger, very, uh, very kind of success, achievement driven. Um, things generally went pretty well for me. Uh, school was pretty easy for me. Did well in school. Had friends. Got leadership positions, awards, sports. Did pretty well in sports. Things like that. Um, went to college. Went, uh, yeah, I went to college and, and I finished in three years. And then my, I, I did a graduate program in my fourth year. And I started to have some trouble with uh, short-term memory loss. I would forget what I was saying a lot. I would uh, lose my keys all the time. And uh, not, not at a point where you're like, oh, I do that all the time. We're talking like I would multiple times a month would have milk spoil because I would go to like pour milk and, and like I'd leave the room and just forget that I had the milk out. <laughs> so so anyhow, I would see a counselor and he's like, you really have an imbalanced life. You need to decompress. And I just bl- totally blew him off because uh, he wore a sweater vest and it was purple. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, that guy wears a sweater vest and he's purple. He, he, he was he to tell me anything. So I went to teach high school in the inner city 
in uh, West Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was just uh, it was a disaster on every level. Uh, I was a white kid who had grown up in a you know insulated suburban environment. Then I went to an insulated college, and then I you know and now I'm now I'm seeing children get arrested every day and <laughs> breaking up fights and <laughs> observing drug deals and being threatened and cussed at and all this kind of stuff. And it, it was very much like a, a schema-shattering experience for me. But I started to have really deep problems with depression during that time. And for, you know, ultimately I had to resign from my job because of depression. I had a panic attack. And uh, for me, you know, different people, their, their depression manifests itself in different ways. But for me, it was um, overwhelmed by anything. The idea of answering a phone call was utterly overwhelming. Uh, for a period, driving a car was a little bit overwhelming. Going upstairs to go to sleep, just walking up the stairs was overwhelming. Social situations were overwhelming. And so that was part of it. There was a fatigue. I was just, you know, exhausted all the time. And this this was very intense for about five months to a point where I could only work for about, you know, like a part-time job while I was kind of getting my feet on the ground. And uh, and then, you know, and, 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 and so things got a little bit better it kind of went in phases, uh, but it would all, you know, for really for about 10 years, it would cycle like this, and uh, it would cycle where I might be totally fine for about nine months, but then I'd have a one to two and a half month period where I would just be very, you know, melancholy, not excited about anything, um, you know, easily overwhelmed, so on and so forth. And so that, that's kind of what it looked like for me. And so I will say, uh, this is somewhat unusual, I have been healed uh, amazingly. And, 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 and there have kind of been through four areas by which I've experienced a lot of healing. I haven't had to take medicine for about seven years, and that's been a blessing. Um, but the kind of four areas where I was um, cared for, were, that, were, that kind of helped my care were one, um, one was medicine. Medicine really helped me for about four and a half, five years. Um, secondly, clinical counseling. A good counselor was the single best thing. It was incredibly helpful for me. Um, Another thing was kind of life management, like learning things like you need to get sleep, you need to know when to kind of back off, uh, exercise, a good diet, things like just kind of overall life management has been very helpful. And then honestly, the gospel, the gospel, and I'll talk about why in a little bit, but the gospel, especially just knowing grace, knowing uh, the implications of being a forgiven sinner who's perfectly accepted by God, who's been made righteous by God through Christ. That is, you know, under all of it, the gospel is the thing that's healed me the most. And I don't mean that in a hyper-spiritual way. A lot of, there's a lot of ignorance in the church about mental illness. A lot of people see, uh, you know, taking medication as like a moral failure uh, or seeing depression as like a, a spiritual shortcoming and you need to just pray your way through it. And, and that's ignorant and it's destructive and it doesn't help anybody. Uh, depression is just is a physiological reality, just like blood pressure problems or, or diabetes. Uh, you know, no, one, no one says you're a, a moral failure if you have diabetes. Um, and so no one should say that you're a, a spiritual failure if you have depression. It's just a physiological reality. And so, um, but I, I do want to look at this one text really fast. Because this kind of gospel dynamic undergirds what, so much of what has, has healed me and so much of what I think is helpful for your and promoting like positive mental health for your child. And uh, they're kind of, well, it's Luke, we're going to be in Luke 18. 
uh, verses 9 through 14, very short story. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Um, so, it's, uh, this is, you know, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. This is the audience of this story. And so, it says, uh, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So um, a couple of just kind of things to see here. Jesus has this juxtaposition. He's putting this tax collector, which you know tax collectors were despised, they were Jews who worked for the Roman government. They were usually crooked. They usually extorted money from their own people on behalf of the Romans. And so they were hated uh, and seen as, you know, the worst of sinners. And then you had this Pharisee who's this morally perfect, utterly religious, pietistic person. And so he's juxtaposing them. And so he says of the, of the Pharisee to those who are confident of their own righteousness. And by that, basically talking, you know, basically saying people who felt like as far as their acceptance from God, they trusted in their own moral performance. They trusted in their own effort to be acceptable before God. Uh, and Jesus says um, that this person looked down on everyone else. So compared himself, uh, felt like, I've, I've got it together, I'm strong. These people, now they have problems. And, uh, and, Jesus, and then Jesus says that, um, you notice that the Pharisee stood by himself. <laughs> and uh, he, he trusts in his own righteousness. He stands by himself. He judges the other person. And he looks at, he says, I fast twice. He looks at what he's doing for his, for his own acceptance. Meanwhile, you have the tax collector who comes to God and says, I'm a sinner. Help me. And Jesus says that the person who is justified, which justified basically means to become perfectly acceptable to God. Where your sins are forgiven, anything that's imperfect about you is redeemed, and you have perfect standing before God. You're Nothing, you know, nothing can come between you and God's acceptance. Um, he says that the tax collector, the person who could admit weakness, was justified. And you know, as a product of, you know, we see the Pharisee is alienated he's by himself. The tax collector is, uh, is you know, united with God. He has connectedness with God through his justification. And so you see that you know, in God's economy, it's people who are weak, people who can admit that they have problems, and, uh, and people who aren't looking for inner strength, but they're looking for God's help and God's mercy, that those are the people, those are the people that kind of are favored in God's kingdom. Those are the people who enter into God's kingdom. All right, so where, how does this have to do with depression? Well, as I started to you know, go through all this counseling, there were kind of three patterns that were identified in my life that exacerbated my issues with depression. And so um, those three areas, and I'll speak about them in negative terms and in positive terms. One was chronic stress. Uh, second was alienation or isolation. And a third one was uh, an, an inability to admit weakness or to admit problems um, and ask for help. 
And so I'm just going to go through all three of those, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit on my, you know, about myself, and I'll speak a little bit about, um, you know, some practical applications as it pertains to your to your child. Uh, but chronic stress, um, you know, what we would really love for our children is to have restfulness, to have restfulness. When I meet with students, I usually will ask. I've done this over the last six months. I've asked them, what would you say are the two negative emotions that your um, that you think your peers struggle with the most. And some will say alienation, or some will say loneliness, insecurity, blah, blah, blah. Not a single child in six months has not said anxiety. Anxiety and stress is kind of the most prevalent emotion that I see kids uh, saying that, is, that troubles them in their life. Uh, 2010, art, 2010 Psychology Today article talks about how the average teenager today has a, an equivalent anxiety level as the average institutionalized patient of the 1950s. So that's a, that's, that is normal. That is intense anxiety. And then, two, um, one thing that's very interesting is a 2007 uh, National Institute of Health study found that... Um, no sweat. Hey, I'm honored. I'm honored. I'm flattered, truly. Uh, 2007 uh, NIH study found that suburban kids tend to struggle with depression and anxiety at twice the rate as middle-class kids and poor kids. So um, depression and anxiety is a much bigger issue for kids in environments like the over-the-mountain area, uh, you know, Hoover, Vestavia, Mountain Brook, Forest Park. It's a much bigger issue than, say, the middle-class middle class areas around Birmingham or lower-income areas around Birmingham. And so what the thing that's very interesting is they found amongst suburban kids the, the biggest determinant of their stress level is going to be whether or not the child felt like their parent was evaluating their performance, uh, whether they felt like they were being measured in everything that they did. That was a, a huge indicator on whether a child would struggle with depression and anxiety. So, um, so anyhow, kids are under, and you know, there are lots of different variables in your kid being stressed out. They could be social. Um, they could be, mostly what I hear from kids is school. They're, they're very worried about school and achievement in school. Um, but I think that a lot of times kids feel trapped. Like there's something that they have to measure up, a way that they have to measure up, and that, that there is no way out. There's n and there's no acceptance of failure. And so, um, so uh, you know, one thing we're you know, hoping to do is help life be less stressful for our kids. And there are some practical things we can do that. One, one thing is, you know, to con continually remind them of the gospel. Like, hey, look... You're, you're loved regardless of your performance. Like you're, whether you're the straight-A student or you're all Fs, like God loves you perfectly. You're completely accepted by us as parents and, and by your Lord. So that's one thing. And there are also just practical things like uh, being wise about your child's boundaries on how much they're doing, um, doing everything you can to help your child get enough sleep. Uh, most of our kids sleep with their, their phone under their pillow. And most kids will be on a group text message from early in the morning until 1 o'clock at night. So it's probably not until 1 o'clock at night if your child sleeps with their, their phone under their pillow. Um, it's probably not until 1 o'clock at night that they are actually able to sleep without interruption. Uh, and then it's going to crank up five hours later. And I mean, I think most, most uh, doctors would say you need a minimum of seven hours of sleep a night. So anyhow... Th thing, setting boundaries for your kids on their activities and on their technology is, uh, I think that's a, those are a couple of practical things. All right, a second thing, uh, a second area that we're trying to promote is 
you know, the opposite of alienation would be connectedness. Uh, connectedness within the family, um, connectedness within their friend groups. So, uh, you know, it's kind of hard because you can't, you can't make your kid have friends. You know, I mean, I know for a lot of parents, their, their big struggle is they don't feel like their child has a friend group or has anyone to hang out with. And there's just nothing you can really do to effectuate that. Um, but a lot of this research says that um, it is particularly important and helpful for a child to have connectedness within their family. And that is hard because a lot of your life is driving carpool. A lot of your life is, you know, going to, from cheerleading practice to the tutor to this social event to the small group, whatever it may be. And so one thing that I... Um, couple of things that I've seen parents do that I think is, is really kind of wise and helpful in terms of promoting connectedness for their child is, one, uh, we have some families who will say, you can go out one night of the weekend. Maybe that's Friday night, maybe that's Saturday night, but like this Saturday night, we are having forced family fun, as Craig Smalley says. <laughs> and, and they do, or Sunday night is off limits for any, any kind of activity, whether it's hanging out with your friends or going to use your whatever it is. We are hanging out this Sunday night. And so the kid, they said their kids will resist, but ultimately they, they really love it and they really enjoy it when it happens. That and um, using the car as your, as your friend. Uh, I, I, honestly, if I ever have an opportunity as a youth minister where a parent's like, hey, can, you know, when you finish meeting with my child, can you give them a ride over here? I'm like, absolutely, Hallie, that sounds great because my best conversations happen in the car. And so uh, use car time. To tell your child, put your phone away, and we're just going to chitty chat. Let's turn off the radio, and um, and so use that to your advantage. Uh, and honestly, I'll say this: this is going to sound very self-aggrandizing. I feel like for a lot of our kids, their small group, their their church, like Bible study slash small group, is where they have the greatest sense of connectedness in terms of their peer groups. Um, there's some level of vulnerability. They're talking about their life. It's consistent. It's safe. And so um, I think that's something to, that's helpful to prioritize. Uh, finally, the last thing was, the last kind of pattern was an inability to admit problems. And so something we really want to kind of promote with kids is uh, a level of safety to admit when they are struggling, a level of freedom to ask for help. I just, I kind of felt like uh, I, was, I was not allowed not to smile. I definitely felt like I was not allowed to fail. I can remember when my pastor, when I was struggling with depression, he's like, you're probably going to need to resign from your job. It's like, you, if you don't resign, you, you might have a nervous breakdown. And I can just remember just absolutely resisting that. No, I cannot quit. I cannot quit. I cannot do that. I cannot fail. And I was just like almost hostile in the way I resisted it. And I think, you know, I think that in environments, southern suburban environments, there is a complete intolerance for imperfection. Um, you're, not allowed, you're not allowed to send your child to inpatient treatment. You're not allowed to say that my child has an eating disorder. You're not allowed to say that my child you know, has an addiction problem. You're not allowed to say that my child is, is depressed. And there still is such a, there's still some uh, you know, social stigma with mental illness. I had someone say to me when I told my testimony and talked about depression, uh, at the church like about 10 years ago and someone well-meaning older said to me you know you might not want to talk about depression uh, publicly like this you know there's still some people 
who think that, you know, if you have problems like that, you're, you know, that you're, that you're crazy. And, like, we don't really want people to think that we have, a, like, a crazy person running the youth ministry at our church. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I know, I know. So, anyhow, um, so, yeah. And, honestly, I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a perfection culture. I mean, how much, how much time do girls spend in the morning getting ready for school? as far as like their hair and all that kind of stuff. Not that the moms struggle with this. Not that moms struggle with this. But, you know, I mean, can you imagine walking out, of, out the front door not looking perfect? You know, and that just is kind of symptomatic, symptomatic of an inability to admit weakness or confess problems. And that is, that right there is um, antithetical to the gospel. Like that's completely antithetical to biblical Christianity. You know, Jesus says over and over again, it's the gateway into the kingdom of God is uh, being able to admit that you are struggling, being able to admit that you're a sinner, being able to admit that you need help from the outside. Like internally, not sufficient. You need God's grace. You need God's help. And so I think that, uh, you know, promoting, uh, reminding, reminding your children of that, that spiritual truth, but also to, uh, you know, cre- creating safety where your child does feel free to come forward if they're depressed, if they're anxious, if they have suicidal thoughts, if they feel like they may have addictive uh, behavior where they feel safe, like they're going to be accepted and where, you know, asking for help is going to be honored and, uh, and celebrated. And also, too, uh, part of that is not judging other people, not judging other people when they're struggling, having a compassionate and sympathetic attitude towards others. Like if, if, it, if you know, if, if someone's child has to go to rehab or someone's child attempted suicide, rather than speaking about that negatively or judging them, speaking in a really uh, a compassionate tone uh, is going to be helpful for your child to see, oh, my mom and my dad were compassionate. When that person struggled, they'll be compassionate with me too. So that's, um, that, that, those are kind of the patterns that I've, I've found seeking connectedness um, being able to say I need to I need to back off or I need help or I need to go back to the I need to go back to the counselor I need to reconsider medicine that has been helpful and then also to um, uh, through counseling and, and better boundaries being able to cope with stress and anxiety having more restfulness in life those are kind of the three things that I would I would promote uh, as far as um, positive mental health for your child so I'll hand it over to you. What I hope to do is spend a little bit of time, um, really just a little bit of time, so that we can have time for a lot of Q&A. I think it's probably where I'm best suited anyway. But to pick up on what Cameron was just talking about, that compassion, that empathy, that feeling into the life of your child or to your spouse or to yourself, um, dealing with depression, just to uh, slow that down, just capture that for a minute. See, that's so important. In some ways, I might even say that's, that's really the nut of the whole thing. I mean, if we have a view that in some way or another it's my fault that I'm depressed or it's a moral failing in my child or my friend or something else, that they had the resources or the capacity to do something about that and they didn't do it, it's a lot harder to have compassion and understanding because then our role is to give some advice, to do something, to fix it, to intervene, to do something to... Uh, to educate this person 
out of their depression because it's ignorance in some form or another that gets them there. And I stand against that in every way, shape, or form. I stand against that in every way, shape, or form. Um, depression and a lot of the other things that we talk about, it's very similar to sin. You know, it comes down to that same nut. If you think people sin because they uh, are ignorant, well, then what's the remedy? Education. Tell them, fuss at them enough to make them figure out that, oh, you're right, I'm not supposed to do that. Then, you know, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and again, people know me, my, my hero, um, uh, Luther, Martin Luther, in a table talk. That just means sitting around at, attributed to him. He once likened to the depression that led to suicide, the type of despair that was so deep, so pervasive, uh, as, a, as being uh, assaulted by a robber and killed in a woods, of being robbed in the woods. It's not the person sort of invited it, put themselves in a situation where they should have known better. I mean, all those connotations just get erased. Uh, they got robbed. They were just doing their own thing, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, just got whacked upside the head, and, uh, and it was taken from them. The passive position, not the active. And there's a, it's, it's kind of long, um, it's two, about a page in this book, and it's kind of small print, but there's a guy that described his depression, I thought, in a very evocative, helpful way. And I thought I'd start with that, because then I'm going to go there and speak very briefly about what depression how kind of its physiology, you know, what are its symptoms, how do you know if your child is depressed, that sort of thing, uh, the treatments, and then I'll try to stop. Um, so this is really sort of my, my nut. Uh, he develops a, um, a metaphor here. Uh, we have a tree in our backyard that's similar to this, you know, this, this big oak tree, and the English ivy has grown up sort of for years, and so the ivy roots uh, the, the, are, you know, they're six inches around, and it goes all the way up this tree. So get that in your mind if you know there's a tree like that. I returned not long ago to a wood in which I had played as a child and saw an oak a hundred years dignified, in whose shade I used to play with my brother. In twenty years, a huge vine had attached itself to this confident tree and had nearly smothered it. It was hard to say where the tree left off and the vine began. The vine had twisted itself so entirely around the scaffolding of tree branches that its leaves seemed from a distance to be the leaves of the tree. Only up close could you see how few living oak branches were left and how a desperate little budding sticks of oaks stuck out like a row of thumbs up the massive trunk, their leaves continuing to photosynthesize in the ignorant way of mechanical biology. Fresh from a major depression in which I had hardly been able to take on board the idea of other people's problems, I empathized with that tree. My depression had grown on me as that vine had conquered the oak. It had been a sucking thing that had wrapped itself around me, ugly and more alive than I. It had a life of its own that bit by bit asphyxiated all the life out of me. At the worst stage of major depression, I had moods that I knew were not my moods. They belonged to the depression. As surely as the leaves on that tree's high branches belong to the vine. When I tried to think clearly about this, I felt that my mind was immured, that it couldn't expand in any direction. I knew that the sun was rising and setting, but little of its light reached me. I felt myself sagging under what was much stronger than I. First, I could not use my ankles, and then I could not control my knees. And then my waist began to break under the strain, 
and then my shoulders turned in, and in the end, I was compacted and fetal, depleted by this thing that was crushing me without holding me. Its tendrils threatened to pulverize my mind and my courage and my stomach and crack my bones and desiccate my body. It went on glutting itself on me, and there seemed nothing left to feed it. I was not strong enough to stop breathing. I knew then that I could never kill this vine of depression, and so all I wanted was for it to let me die. But it had taken from me the energy I would have needed to kill myself, and it would not kill me. If my trunk was rotting, this thing that fed on it was now too strong to let it fall. It had become an alternative support to what it had destroyed. In the tiniest corner of my bed, split and racked by this thing that no one else seemed to be able to see, I prayed to a God I had never entirely believed in and asked for deliverance. I would have been happy to die a most painful death, though I was too dumbly lethargic to even conceptualize suicide. Every second of being alive hurt me. Because this thing had drained all fluid from me, I could not even cry. My mouth was parched as well. I had thought that when you feel your worst, your tears flood, but the very worst pain is the arid pain of total violation that comes after the tears are all used up. The pain that stops every space through which you once metered the world, or the world, you. This is the presence of major depression. So that's one person's experience, and it's a significant experience, and that's obviously a very severe depression. But the title of the series of this little talk, Depression and Suicide, where this person would describe his life in such terms that he would gladly die, but he wasn't even able to die. That's how deep some people describe their depressions. Um, and it's in fact when they begin to come out of their depression, right here, like this is the low point, and when they just come here, this, clinically, is a place where we're most watchful for suicide because that's where they're just a little bit uh, a little bit better, which means they've got some energy, a little bit of perspective to realize just how badly things have gotten. That's where they're sometimes most vulnerable. And that's what this person describes in a very, I think, evocative way of, uh, of wanting to fall over. And he can't because this thing has grown up so slowly around him uh, that he can't even, can't, even, can't even fall over. Total powerlessness. And that's where I empathize. And as parents, I think that's where we start with our children, moving away from this idea where it's on us or on them, we can, we, can, we, can, we can rehearse the causes of depression. In some ways they're helpful, in some ways it's not a helpful conversation. But when you recognize a thing for what it is and say, I don't know why, but it's here. It's in our family and it's here right in front of me now. It's a paradigm shifter where we move from the evaluation that Cameron was talking about to that place of belonging, of acceptance, of, oh, son, I don't know what's gotten us here, but we're here, and I'm here now, and we're not going to let this thing get us. Whatever we need, I'm here. I'm here. Um, and you begin to reset your paradigm away from the evaluation. Cameron's a good, helpful word that most of our kids will say, I'm anxious. What's the source of your anxiety? I have this sense that I'm being constantly evaluated. Evaluated. Criticized, graded, watched, looked at, compared, put against in a comparison way, the national norm, um, my peer group, my father's expectation of me, my mother's appearance, whatever. 
that pervasive sense, which is life, by the way. <laughs> We're not going to get rid of that. But when you see this vine that's invaded your house, to realize, aha, the robber has robbed us, but we're here. And now I'm going to make those deposits, that plant of, um, of belonging, of acceptance, of, of, uh, of I love you. Anyway, even though I can't tell where you start and the vine stops, I love all of that. Um, I'm not going to try to separate you from your depression because to love you is to love your depression. And that's where it starts. I haven't ever put it that way, but that's where it starts. Um, so with that is sort of the intro. Very briefly, what is depression? It's real. I like to put that out there because, you know, it's a, you know, some, some debate. You know, is depression real? Is anxiety real? Or is it a psychosocial construct? Or is it an actual, you know, I'm firmly in the camp. It's real. And what does it do? It has physiological effects. It causes brain damage. That's one way to get people's attention. Untreated depression causes brain damage. In what way? Because I'm not going to go a long way into this, partly because I can't. Um, but the neuronal activity, the neurons in the brain, when they don't work well, that seems to be one of the best ways we describe a depression. And when the neuronal activity in the brain doesn't work well, that part of the brain suffers. And a brain is an organ, like your skin, your liver, your lungs, your pancreas. And when it doesn't work well, when it's not getting adequately perfused with blood or receiving the neurotransmitters, mostly serotonin, but not only, to do what it needs to do when the level of concentration isn't right or the receptors, and that's generally what they think it is, aren't doing what they're supposed to do, the brain suffers. An untreated depression develops a kindling effect, as it's called, just like kindling with firewood, where a little bit of wood builds a bigger fire a kindling effect begins to occur, which is why early intervention, Cameron had a great word at seven, if your 15-year-old comes to you and says, I think I'm depressed, or you look at them and you think they might be depressed, intervene. Because the earlier you can intervene, while they're still under your roof, that's a great gift, that's the point he made, uh, rather than when they're outside of your roof, when you don't get to see them as often, it can be really helpful. Because time doesn't heal most wounds. In fact, it makes them worse. Um, but if you see it, you can change your paradigm and a different approach. Begin to take a self-inventory of yourself, the system, your family. Help them with medication, therapy, and that sort of thing. It can really help. So physiologically, it exists because it causes, it affects the brain. Um, what are the symptoms? Most of us would know it, but sort of at the teenage level, the, the primary thing. Um, well, generally, there's one thing that really differentiates depression in children than adults. In all, um, let me say one thing. In some ways, every depression is like every other depression, full stop. In other ways, completely paradox, every depression is unique. And so those two things coexist. It may be difficult for us to keep them, but every depression is the same in some ways, and every depression is unique in other ways. And so all these are generalities, because some of them are the opposites. Uh, sadness. Um, loneliness, isolation, withdrawal, lack of interest, inability to be happy. Um, it's usually called anhedonia, inability to receive pleasure from the things that used to make you happy or give you pleasure. Uh, uh, a lot of the symptoms are sort of inside out. The person would describe a pervasive sense of hopelessness or doom from the outside in. Somebody else might observe they're crying all the time, they're not eating they're eating a lot more than they used to. They're not eating as much as they used to. They're sleeping a lot more than they used to. They're not sleeping as much as they used to. 
All those things are symptoms. In children and teenagers, one of the primary descriptors is not so much sadness, it's irritability, anger, coming into rage, but usually just irritability. Now, quickly, what do we rush in and say? What teenager <laughs> isn't irritable, doesn't have vast mood swings, um, isn't uh, feeling constantly graded, aren't feeling left out, and sometimes having isolating tendencies, or are hyper-worried about where they fit in. That's, that's normal. And so big, 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 big word here is just because I just described depression symptoms, I've also just described normal teenagerdom. What does that mean? It means we've got to know our kids. Something like what Cameron was talking about, of this is our forced family fun night. If you want to put it in sort of raw language, it gives you a baseline <laughs> that you know what's different. You've got to know your children. We've got to know a patient. You have to know what their context is like before you can make a diagnosis, before you can say, I think this is getting significant because it's normal to experience depression in some situations. It's normal to be depressed, let me put it that way. But that may not be an episode of, of clinical depression. I want to move on and not spend too much time to leave some questions and answers. So treatments that are out there, um, there really aren't that many. Um, in some ways, it's fairly simple. Um, medication, uh, lifestyle adjustments, um, therapy, uh, those are the primary three. What do they mean? Uh, and if you have to pick one, what's the research suggest? Slightly for depression, significantly for anxiety, because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, if you have to pick one or the other between therapy and medication, uh, therapy alone tends to result in, in, in slightly better outcomes than medication alone. The two together have the best possible outcome, um, uh, along with some lifestyle adjustments, just the ones that Cameron mentioned, diet, exercise, um, uh, hobbies, that sort of thing, interest outside of yourself. Uh, but generally speaking, a depression is real, and with some exceptions, somebody that eats fast food all the time, um, highly processed foods, a bunch of really white foods, and they do that for like years. Um, you know, it could be a diet intervention is their primary intervention. Um, get them some green vegetables, for crying out loud. They need some iron and some vitamin D, and that's going to really lift their mood. Most of us aren't that way. It's more uh, as a biochemical basis in some way or another, or psychosocial basis, or some combination of both, and the chicken and the egg start to go. And so, so um, some medication, I can talk about that in the Q&A if you want, or, uh, or some therapy. And the therapy takes two ways. A lot of people would be familiar with these terms. Cognitive behavioral, I call that more the intra, inside the person, where you're looking at sort of the connection between your cognitions, your thoughts, your thought life, your, uh, your automatic thoughts, your unrealistic expectations, all that sort of stuff, your outlook and view of the world, and how it affects your behavior, both your conscious behavior, but also the way you just present. So that's cognitive behavioral, which I think is important. I have a bias towards the other. That's important, but it's a part of what's called the extra-personal, the intrapersonal um, therapy, who we are vis-a-vis -vis other people, because I think it fits especially in the church. The church is the gathered assembly of people of God. And together, as we are together, we, we begin to ameliorate the isolation, the withdrawal, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the pervasive hopelessness that I don't belong, which is depression, that I'm the only one. And a healthy community, the interpersonal, can, uh, can significantly 
help that. And so as a therapist, that's what I'm often doing is some combination of the two of those, more the second, uh, to identify, to clarify, to address, to explore, to lean into, and to begin to find a way out and through. Um, and then, I think that's enough. Um, is that a good, so that's probably enough to start some Q&A, wouldn't you think? Is that anything else that yeah. I said at 7 that might be helpful to kind of begin to mm, set that up? I want to just kind of set some some uh, some topics up that we could then fall over. So, mm-hmm. so why don't we open it up?